0: Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Chinese General Secretary Xi Jinping and the Chinese government have censored any and all pictures of everyone's favorite cuddly bear, Winnie the Pooh. How many of you knew that? Now, why, you might ask. Well, a number of years ago, when he came to the United States and he was with then-President Barack Obama... The people looked at the situation, and he's kind of a short, kind of portly man. And he was walking next to Barack Obama, who's kind of more of a lanky man. And in China, someone put together this image of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. And it caught on in China, and so they began to call him Winnie the Pooh. And then the bloggers, And then the uh, reporters and the newspapers, they all took up this caricature, and that was simply what they would use all over the place to describe what their president was doing. And the president didn't like it. In his mind, it was derogatory and disrespectful, and so no pictures of Winnie the Pooh are allowed in China. You can't send Winnie the Pooh memes to someone who is in China. No piglet, no Eeyore, no rabbit, no rue, no Christopher Robin, no cuddly toys of Winnie the Pooh, not even the movie can be watched. He is banned. And you might laugh at the seemingly ridiculous. Uh, nature of that restriction. How could a cute little cuddly bear cause so much disrespect to the leader of one of the most powerful countries in the world? But then we come to the second commandment and to a jealous God who does not desire to be degraded by any image, even those made with the best of intentions. Listen to what it says again in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is a heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This morning I would like for us to consider the central truth that is this that God is jealous for his people to worship him in the right way. God is jealous for his people for his children to worship him in the right way. If you remember last week, we looked at the first commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the emphasis there was that God does not have any rivals. We sang about this mo- that this morning. And-, and we noted that we must worship God and worship him alone. So the first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God whereas the second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. And friends, those two things are really important because we can be worshiping the right God, but because of our sinful nature, because we want to have the freedom to do things our way, somewhat even in rebellion, we are tempted then to worship God, but to worship him in a way that does not please him, that does not honor him. And friends, if that's true, this is a warning to us that we all have a sinful bent to want to worship God in a way that pleases us, that satisfies our desires, our purposes, our longings, but doesn't please the Lord. Now, the second command divides really clearly into two sections. There's the command, which is verses 4 through 5a, and then there's the warning beginning the word for in verse 5b through verse 6. Let's jump in now to the command to obey. Now, as we begin here, I just want to say that if you've taken time to notice the Protestant Ten Commandments, maybe you've put them to memory already, and you compare those list of commandments with the Catholic list of Ten Commandments, you will notice that there is a difference. The Catholics actually will combine the first and second commandment into one. And they will take the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, and they'll divide it into two commandments. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, and then basically thou shalt not covet your your neighbor's stuff. Right? Now, if you compare, though, the, the, the two accounts that we have in Exodus as well as in Deuteronomy 5 of the Ten Commandments, what we find is that the wife and the, the stuff is actually interchanged in that list, meaning that they're all part of the same thing. And one of, the, one of the things that happens when you take the Second Commandment and you merge it with the First Commandment is that you end up obscuring the purpose of the Second Commandment. Now, friends, the first commandment concerns the worship of false gods. The second commandment concerns the worship of images that represent the one true God. So there are two different commands. There are two different issues that are going on here. And when you go to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church or many Anglican or Episcopal churches, you can immediately see the effect of this prohibition that has been obscured because there are images of God and Jesus and saints all over the place. Sadly, however, even the evangelical church is not far behind in forgetting what God has said in this second commandment. So let's read the first part of of the text again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above earth, and then in the sea below, right? You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So again, you have images, likenesses of anything in heaven, heaven above, and the earth beneath. It's kind of strange language for us. We don't think about the earth being beneath, right? But above, beneath, and then under, right? So it's basically saying anything in the world you shall not use or make to represent the one true God. Don't make them, don't bow down to them, don't worship them is what it's saying. Now, based on the context, the commandment is talking about making images or likenesses of God. And of course, that would be likenesses of Jesus, because Jesus is part of the Godhead, right? You say, well, how are you sure that's the case? Turn to Deuteronomy 4, if you would, please. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 15 through 20. What we have here is at the end of the wilderness wanderings, Moses now is reflecting on this encounter, and he is giving again some further detail as to what was said here in the book of Exodus, beginning at verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Again. This is strong language, very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke, spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Remember, all they saw were the effects of his presence. They actually didn't see him. They didn't see a form. And just think about that word. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the what? In the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you may be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So get the picture here. He's saying, look, any creation that you make of an animal, of a bird, of, of some crawly, creepy thing, of the moon, of the stars, of the sun, and somehow you're using that as a means to actually worship the one true God, here's the problem. He says there in verse what 19, you may be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. Now, friends, this is important. You see, part of the challenge here is when people make something, we can be drawn to the thing rather than to God himself. So making carved images leads to worshiping carved images. That's the challenge. That's the concern. That's what God is ultimately getting at here. The command is not talking about who we worship now. The command is talking about how we worship. We must worship the true God in the right way. Now, I want to kind of backpedal here a little bit and just say this, that God is not against art or beauty. The second commandment does not intend to outlaw art or paintings or beauty. In fact, as we have instruction for the building of the temple, it was supposed to have angels and palm trees about it. The Ark of the Covenant will have two cherubim sitting on it, formed, fashioned for the Ark of the Covenant. God gave the Spirit to Bezalel and Uh 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 Aholiab in Exodus chapter 31, that they might be skilled artists and craftsmen. So God is not against art. He's not against using uh, those, those gifts to, to, to do beautiful things. No, God is, isn't against beauty or beautiful things, but hear this. What the second commandment is prohibiting is infusing into any image, painting, or statue any spiritual presence, any channel or connection to God. Let me say that again it's it's talking about the uh, is prohibiting the infusing of into any image painting or statue any presence or channel or connection to god that being near or in the presence of or bowing down to or looking at such an image is a means by which we draw closer to god or establish communion with him friends this is an issue That the second commandment is addressing and and the issue is whether or not we are satisfied with god's revelation or not as the source of our knowledge and our understanding of him are we satisfied with his revealed word or do we believe that we need to use our imaginations to truly comprehend him so friends it really comes down to two things Man's imagination, God's revelation. Which is it going to be? So we begin here, letter A, the danger of human imagination. And this is the bulk of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I think it's important to realize that this is this is the actual command. This is what it's saying. It's, it's, it's going against creating these things and bowing down to them and worshiping them. Now, let's think about God. What do you think about when you think about God? What image comes to your mind? It's probably of an older man with gray hair, probably long gray hair, probably a long beard. He might be in heaven looking down. He might be reaching down with his hand. It's something like that. But hear this. If you're honest, some image somewhere has influenced your thinking about what God is like. Is he white? Is he Hispanic? Is he African? Is he Middle Eastern? Is he Asian? Is he Mongolian? Is he in his 60s, in his 70s, in his 20s, in his 30s? Is he angry? Is he happy? Is he distant? Is he welcoming? See, we have in our mind's eye an image of God, and much of what we imagine of God actually doesn't come from the scriptures. It actually comes from pictures that have been painted through the years, that have formed kind of an image in our mind. Now, I I was at a church in Michigan called Dixie Baptist Church, and that church had what was called the highway pulpit. It was right on I-75. I-75 goes from Michigan all the way down to Florida, okay? And right on the side of the road, on the church property, as you go north on I-75, there is this huge pulpit, and it's a picture of Christ. It's like 50 feet wide, or 50 feet high, 25 feet wide. And it has the question underneath it, are you on the right road? So it's become an icon in Michigan. And people actually say, you know, you know you're, all, you're, you're definitely going up north in Michigan once you pass the picture of Christ. I mean, it's that kind of thing. People know, all right, I'm there. It's kind of like going north and seeing the trees. Up, as you go up to Sacramento, there's that, that tr- nut tree place, whatever that's up there. There's things that you notice. Okay, I know where I am. And this is, this is what happens here. But it, and it's well-intended. The, the desire was to, to, to use that as an opportunity for people driving by to, 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 to ask themselves a question, are you on the right road? And maybe generate some spiritual conversation. So in one sense, so far so good. But the problem is, it's a giant picture of Christ. an Anglo or Scandinavian picture of Jesus, and his hair is long and wavy, and he has neat, trimmed beard, and he's welcoming and he's warm in his expression. And so now the question is this: Is that helpful? Or is that actually damaging? Because it is a perspective of Christ that has been put into an image. Now, it's a difficult question, but it's a question that is answered with this second commandment. So as we think about the fact that we have a command here to obey, we need to consider the fact that there is a danger in this human imagination. Let me offer some reasons why God doesn't want us to make images of him carved, painted, or molten. Hopefully, you're probably not doing the molten thing, at least. Um, First of all, images are incomplete. They give a limited portrayal of God. They will always fall short of who God truly is. They will always fail at giving us the real picture. Anytime man seeks out an image to portray God, he immediately limits God and confines him to the image itself. Secondly, images are a distortion. They offer a distorted understanding of God. All right? It will inevitably paint a picture or portray God in a way that distorts who he truly is. Fallen man will never do justice to presenting a holy God. But when he makes an image, he begins to view God in light of that image, and therefore the true understanding of God is not only incomplete, it is distorted, right? The third one, and I think this is probably uh, where things lead, and that is images are an accommodation. And what do I mean by that? We have a tendency because of our sinfulness to want to adjust God to accommodate what we want. (laughs) So we create a God who is fashioned and shaped in the way that we want him to be. What we may have begun as a well-intended reminder of God has become now the object of worship. Instead of drawing us to God, it is drawing our attention away from God, and it is usually happening in ways we don't notice. When I was in Bolivia a number of years ago, I can't remember if, if any of you guys were with me when we did this, but we went to a town uh, called Katoka where a famous statue, the Virgin of Katoka, stands in its main church. And Matias would tell me, he says, you know, once a year they have this pilgrimage to this statue of this Virgin of Katoka. And people literally will go on their knees for 10 miles to get to this statue. So that they can receive a blessing from the Virgin of Katoka. So I was intrigued. I was like, I want to I see this statue." So we go into this church, and the first thing I notice as we come into the right-hand side, there's Jesus, kind of an effigy of Jesus, like, you know, like a, a statue, but him laying down. And of course, he's, he's very Bolivian-looking, all right? He's very dark. And I think, okay, that's interesting. All right, it's cultural, no big deal. And then we walk and we find our, our way to the place where this version of Katoka is, and I found out in looking at it, she's like a three-foot plastic doll. I mean, not even a carved image, but a doll, like an American girl doll, but dressed in, in garb and Bolivian colors. And friends, her loyal followers And worshipers have infused into this statue a sense of deeper connection with God by her very presence and by bowing down to her. That is a direct violation of this second commandment. Now, I don't know if you've seen videos of this. I've seen it. I haven't observed it in person, but I've seen it. You've seen, you know, people gathering for worship in certain religious contexts, primarily Catholic churches or maybe Orthodox churches. And on days of celebration or or festivals, they bring out the the actual idols, right? And they carry them like this. You know where I'm going, right? And somehow someone drops aside and the statue goes bang on the ground, right? Sometimes they break. Let me tell you, that's not good news. That's not good news at all. God must not be pleased with us, right? Our harvest is going to be terrible, whatever it might be. But it's all because they're infusing into the image something that God says is not even there. And by bowing down to this and by creating this, you are having a distorted understanding and you're not actually worshiping the one true God. So friends, such worship of man-made images only leads to superstition. And superstition is a demonic distraction of the truth of the one true God. It is worship that is rooted in man's imagination, not in God's word. Now, if you just go online and do a Google of Jesus in my toast, you will find numerous responses of people who have put their bread in, and pulled it out, and lo and behold, there's Jesus to greet them and to encourage them that day. In fact, in 2004, a decade-old image of the Virgin Mary on an old toasted cheese sandwich sold for $28,000. You see, this is where superstition takes us. We're looking for all this crazy stuff what in images And in that situation, it wasn't even made by man, it was kind of made by chance. So this is a kind of mysticism, friends, that is directly opposed to the teaching of God's word. Yet sadly, it is embraced by many of the religious institutions represented under the umbrella of Christianity. In fact, much of society views Christianity through that lens. That's what they think Christianity is. Now let's look closer at the command and see what it actually is saying. You shall not make for yourself any carved images or likenesses. And that's helpful for our understanding here, isn't it? The goal of this image that they're making is for themselves. In other words, we want it for our own benefit. And the danger is that if we're making a carved image or a painting or a statue for ourselves, then we will seek to use our imaginations and therefore create something that meets our needs or makes us feel a certain way. We want to make God in the image that suits us best. Now, friends, this is all part of man's imagination. And probably the best example of what violating the second command looks like actually happens just a few days after these Ten Commandments are given. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, or 32. And of course, this is the story of the golden calf. Now, what we find is that the people were impatient. They're waiting for Moses. He's gone up into the mountain to commune with God and to bring down the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. But they're like, where is he? he he's not coming back. And so they go to Aaron and they say, up. Make us gods who, will go, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they took off their gold rings and the earrings and jewelry and gave them to Aaron, and he melted the gold, and he fashioned it into a golden calf. So they, they violated the second commandment by making an image of a calf, an image from the earth beneath. You, you see what's going on here. But now let's, let's just continue on and thinking through this, this story. After that, Aaron builds an altar, and notice what it says. He declares a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. We've built a golden calf. We now have an altar that we're going to offer sacrifices to this golden calf, and we're going to have a feast for the Lord. So they wanted to celebrate to the Lord, but in a way that completely violated his command. And what happens to God's people when they worship the one true God in their own way, a way that suits their senses and their sensuality? Well, we find out in verse 6, don't we? And the words are very chilling. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and sacrifices Or sorry, the burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that word play is a euphemism for immorality. Now, Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21, looks back on this account, and this is what it says. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image they exchanged the glory of god for the image of an ox that eats grass they forgot god their savior who had done great things in egypt pretty powerful isn't it i mean this is looking back this is what they were doing this completely violates the second commandment but israel is guilty of that violation now, what we've looked at so far has been negative. It's the it's the negative side of the commandment. It's actually what God says, but when God gives his commandments, although there's something that you shall not do, there is also then something that you should be doing, right? That's the alternative of that. You shouldn't be doing this. Now, what should you be doing? So here's the positive side. Where should our image of God come from? And, of course, the answer to that question is that God has revealed himself in the word of God that he has breathed out, his very scripture. So now we move into the delight of divine revelation. And here's what we find. We find, first of all, about God, we understand some things about God, that God is spirit, and that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And the scriptures, as they unfold, they give us a developing, you might even say an evolving understanding of what he is like in all of his glory. He is sovereign. That means he's in control of everything. He's all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's everywhere. Also, he is holy, righteous, and pure. He is just, angry, wrathful. He is loving, tender-hearted, forgiving. He is patient. He's gracious. He's kind. And that's just a short list of his characteristics and his attributes. And it's important that we recognize that each of his attributes fashion the other attributes. In other words, even in his wrath, God is just, he's holy, and he's loving. His anger is a righteous anger, or his omnipresence is also very kind. All these attributes shape and fashion the other attributes. So uh, there's nothing distorted about God in any way, shape, or form. That's the revelation of Scripture. And we we think about God, but I want us to think also about Jesus. Jesus is declared to us to be both God and man. Have you ever noticed how Scripture is silent about his features? Or it speaks in in, in generalities? For example, what was his hair color? How long was his hair? What were the color of his eyes? What about the size of his stature? What about his facial features or his smile? Now, we're told in Luke chapter 5, verse 22, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in the favor with God and with men. I mean, that just kind of gives us a general kind of a picture of who he is. But we don't have answers to those things I just mentioned. What we do know is this. He was Jewish through Mary. And he was a man. That's pretty much it. I mean, anything more specific is really speculation. What we find also in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, is that we have this prophecy about the Messiah who would come, and of course we understand that that Messiah is Christ, and in that chapter we're told that Jesus would not have any external features or beauty that would attract or draw people to himself. So we can say this, Jesus looked like an average person with no distinguishing characteristics. In other words, the crowds didn't follow Jesus because he looked like a rock star or a model. What we find is that they followed him because of his words, because of his teaching, because of his doctrine. And unlike the the teachers of his time, Jesus spoke with authority. That's what was attractive. So, Why is it that we don't have any specifics about what Jesus looked like? Now, Scripture doesn't tell us, but let me offer at least a couple of suggestions. Number one, because Jesus is Messiah for all peoples, for all nations, for all ethnicities, right? The the color of his hair and the color of his eyes and his complexion and those things are not relevant. He is for us all. And kind of on the backside of that, the second thing is this, that if we had more specific things mentioned about him, we would be tempted to draw uh, ourselves to those characteristics than uh, to the fact that he is Christ. We would be tempted away. It might cause division. It might say, well, you know, the the true Jesus is this, you know, and, and, and that's not the point. The physical body in that sense is not the point. He certainly came as man, took upon the form of man, but we're not told specifically what he looked like. So we must let scripture and not our imaginations guide our thoughts about who God is and what his son is like. Now I want to again back up a little bit here and say this. This command is not just about idols that we make with our hands but it's about the imaginings of our hearts. Again, you know Tozer's famous quote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. But see, there's a problem with that statement. People often have a lot of different ideas of who God is, don't they? Let me just rattle off a few for you. Oh, when I imagine God, I think that he's full of love and accepting of us all. The God of my Bible wouldn't send people to hell for committing just one sin. God is a hateful bully, always punishing us for our sin. God wouldn't want me to fight against what I feel. He wants me to embrace these God-giving feelings and accept who I am. He is distant and disconnected. He doesn't care what I do. God just wants me to be moral and good and to have a happy life. He only intervenes if we're really in a bind. God won't listen to us or meet our requests unless we are obedient and keep his commandments fully, and we pray diligent. Now, friends, all of those are ideas and thoughts that come from people's imaginations. They don't come from the truth of God's word. They're not rooted in Scripture. And that is ultimately Tozer's point. When you think about God, what comes into your mind is the most important thing about you, and it answers the question, what is the source of your understanding and your view of God? If it's your imagination, it's going to be distorted. If it's Scripture, it's going to be crisp. It's going to be clear. So we must be careful to worship God as he is revealed in Scripture. Now, friends, having spent last month highlighting some of the uh, people and tenets of the Reformation, we can see from this text how important um, the sola, sola scriptura, is. It is Scripture alone that reveals what God is like. It is scripture alone that teaches us how we are to live. It is scripture alone that guides our hearts to know God better. It is scripture alone that dictates for us how we are to worship. But in our spiritual society today, people would rather go someplace and have some kind of a feeling and say, God revealed to me, God told me, God impressed on me these things. And that's what's driving them rather than what scripture actually said. So, we have this challenge between scripture and our imaginations. Now, friends, it's not that our imaginations are all evil, God has given us imagination so that we can be creative. But he has also given us his word to guide and to shape that creativity. They're like guardrails at a bowling alley that help us keep the ball in the lane, so to speak. The word of God does that, and we then can imagine God. We can think of God out of what scripture says. I would draw your attention to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes into the idol-filled city of Athens. And he is looking all around, but he notices the the statue to the unknown God. And he goes into the Oropagus, and this is what he says. And I want you, as I'm reading this, I want you to hear how he is arguing for God. And I'm going to say up front, he's not arguing out of his imagination. He's arguing out of Scripture. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Today we call them spiritual. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made for one man every nation uh, uh, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined uh, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we move. And, and have our being, even as some of your own pro, uh, poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. You see where he's going? I just pause there. He's making a distinction. Everything I'm telling you about who this God is can be sourced in Scripture in the very Old Testament text that he has. And he's saying, all these other things are the imaginations of man. So friends, it's really important for us to recognize that the source of our understanding of who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, is not our imaginations. It is the very word of God. And so we can be guilty of violating this commandment, not because we're forming statues or making paintings and that kind of stuff, but we actually have an image of God in our mind that we are bowing down and worshiping that is a distorted image. And what we need to do is make sure that our image of God is accurate and reflects what scripture says. So having looked now at this command to obey, we want to move now to this warning that we need to heed. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, we're told, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why should I not make or bow down or worship an idol created out of my own imagination? Again, God says here, because I'm a jealous God. And we need to read that in the context of the fact that God is speaking his commandments not to the world at large, but to his people in particular. He is jealous. Of course, in the Bible, the word jealous can mean jealous in a negative sense, but it can also mean jealous in a positive sense. For example, if you are jealous for your spouse, that's a good thing. It's part of your commitment to your husband and wife. Envy is a desire for what is not one's own. Jealousy focuses on what one has a right to. So it's right for a spouse to be jealous of their spouse, all right? Because you have a covenant relationship that is established. And so it is this preoccupation with something that you have a right to, that you're jealous for. So when God says to Israel, I am a jealous God, he's speaking about the relationship uh, that that covenant has brought into existence. He's saying, I am committed to maintaining that relationship and opposing all that threatens it. That's being jealous. So he dotes on his people. He's seeking to protect them, to rescue them, to guide them, and to guard them because they are his covenant people. And friends, if you're a child of God today, you can be thankful that he is jealous for you. And what that means is he is looking out for you. He's doing what he needs to do to maintain this covenant covenant relationship. So if you wander away, or if you struggle, or if you're struck down, he is looking to protect you, to nurture you, to strengthen you. Why? Because as we read earlier, you are his precious possession. And friends, if you are a child of God, be thankful that he is jealous for you. Now, the consequences of how you respond to his jealousy are twofold. And we have them unfolded for us in this passage. There's judgment for those who hate him. There's blessing for those who love him. First of all, judgment for those who hate him. Now, what are we to make of verse 5, where it says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me? I know there's been some really bad teaching through the years. I think of going to Bill Gothard's seminars and hearing some of the nonsense that came out of his interpretation of this. It's not a reference to generational curses or hexes or demonic oppression. It's It um, doesn't mean that a righteous child will be punished unfairly for the sins of his wicked father. In fact, that's a common misunderstanding. So common that we have... Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, to help us resolve that. I'll just quote it for you right here. Ezekiel 18:20 says this, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So the book of Ezekiel will not let us take the view of what is being wrongly presented as this is a curse to the next generation. So what does the warning actually mean? This warning is about God's judgment on those who walk in wicked ways of their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. Again, look at verse 5 carefully. God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, these children share their father's punishment because they share their father's sin. So Ezekiel teaches that if you turn away from your father's sin, you will not face your father's punishment. Exodus says that if you turn away from your father's sin, um, sorry, if you keep on sinning as your father did, you will not escape your father's punishment. So that's, that's what's going on here. You can't blame your parents for your own sin. God will punish those who hate him. So let the warning sink in, friends. When you violate the second commandment, you bring a judgment on your own family and the subsequent generations. Notice the judgment is immediate, it's generational, and it's eternal. Now, I would encourage you to turn to Romans 1. I'm just going to highlight some things in verses 18 through verse 32 real quickly here, just to, to make sure we're connecting the dots. Here we have described for us the decline of a society. In verse 18, we're told that they suppress the truth. It's been revealed to them, so they're not ignorant of the truth or of God, but they suppress it. And in verse 22 and following, claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for what? Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Does that sound familiar at all? Then in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. So they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Again, what I'm trying to show you here is that as we go down through here, there is man's imagination and there's God's revelation. There's the lie, which is man's imagination, and there's the truth, what God has revealed. And in verse 30, one of the descriptions of these people that have been given up by God is that they are haters of God. Now, do you see how Romans 1 is rooted in the second commandment? This is what happens when a nation turns its back on God. And it's a New Testament warning rooted in the warning of the second commandment. So there is this judgment for those who hate him. There's also a... Wonderful blessing for those who love him. Notice it says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, this is an outflow of God's jealousy. He's committed to those with whom he has covenanted. So the blessing I'm talking about here is a covenant blessing. God's steadfast love. This is the Hesed word in the Old Testament. And it's a, it means a love that is, is, that is a covenant love. This is the first time, by the way, that Scripture mentions a loving God. It's always been implied, but now it is actually expressed. He is committed to us. Therefore, all he says, warnings, instructions, judgments, commands, they're all for our good. He truly knows what is best. So there's this steadfast love. There's also our affectionate love that's being talked about here. It describes here the inner disposition of affection and desire that his children have toward him. It encompasses the actions and attitudes that, that we have in our obedience. But all of this is bound up in this covenant blessing. Now, don't think blessing in terms of condition, as if if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll get Blessing. Think of, the, of this blessing in terms of covenant. It, it is what you experience. Why? Because you're in covenant. You don't have to do something in order for God to bless you. Why? He already loves you. Just get over the fact. He loves you. You fall flat on your face in sin, guess what? He loves you. Why? Because it's a covenant relationship. It is what it is. So the blessing of his steadfast love is always present with his true children. And it sure sounds to me like Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, friends, God is jealous for his children to delight in him And to obey his word. Is that a reflection of your heart? Let me just draw things to a close with two concluding thoughts. So, does the second commandment still ring true today? If you were to take a trip to Rio de Janeiro, you would not be able to miss the giant statue of Christ that overlooks the city with outstretched arms. There's similar statues in places like Portugal, Poland, Peru, Nigeria, and Vietnam. Now, it is impressive. I've not seen it personally. It's an amazing work of art, if you want to look at it from that perspective. And it likely brings some comfort to some people. But friends, let, let's think this through. It is a distortion of Christ. If Jesus is standing facing the city with his hands raised high in blessing, then he's turned his back on someone. Now just think through that. It's not intended, but it's the implication of creating a statue. Yes, embrace the city, but turn your back on the rest of the country? And people have been offended where these statues go up because he's not facing them, and our town is over here and it's behind him. Why? God doesn't care about us. Now anytime we make an image through a stone pottery, painting, wood, metal, or even now in print, or on the screen, we run the risk of promoting a distortion of Christ. So now we need to be careful and balanced. With this point of application. Without some clarity, you may be tempted to go home and purge all of your children's Sunday school materials, pull the baby out of the nativity, or maybe remove a picture you have hanging on your wall. But friends, wisdom would say if we have the opportunity, if it's our choice, we want to avoid having an image of God or Christ in the context of church We don't want images interfering with and distorting our knowledge of God. But we live in a culture, friends, that is image-driven. And so we have images of God painted and printed all over the place, pictures of Jesus in various places. And when we see them, we must always look higher than what we see. In other words, we must be reminding ourselves that the image is not Christ. It is not Christ. So when your child brings home that Sunday school lesson, there happens to be like a a drawing in ink of of here's Jesus feeding the 5,000 whatever. And there's a kind of an image of Jesus. You need to be reminding your children, look, this is an image, but this is not Christ. It's a picture, but it's insufficient. It's not complete. This is not Christ. It falls woefully short in portraying who Christ is. Now, I don't think that the second commandment means that you should punish your children because they drew a picture of Christ. But it does mean that we need to teach our children that the image is not Christ. So that that baby in the Nativity is not Christ. And we need to preach to our hearts that the images that we form in our minds based on other images that we have seen are not true reflections of Christ or of God. And even movies like The Passion of Christ that present a very distorted picture of Christ, they can can leave us with an image that, that somehow hinders us from seeing something beautiful that Scripture reveals about Christ. So, friends, it's important, first of all, that we note, and here's the point, the image is not Christ. Whenever you see a picture of Christ, whenever you see a statue of Christ, someone's created it, someone's made it, maybe you walk into a church, or maybe you see it in a magazine, whatever, you just got to remind yourself, that's not Christ. That's not Christ. That's not Christ. We must always look higher and look to the scriptures. Secondly, I would say this. And we began our service with this text, Colossians 1.15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the image. To look upon Christ is to look upon the face of him who could not be seen at Sinai. Jesus did the impossible. He allowed humans to see the God who cannot be seen, the invisible God. That is the mystery of the incarnation, friends. So we don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And to that end, may we be honest and truthful to embrace the identity with the Thessalonian church who had this reputation. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. May that be true of us here at Gateway, that we see the instruction of the second commandment carefully with right balance, but understanding the danger And be willing to make sure that we are saying to ourselves, this is not Christ, this is not Christ, this is not Christ. But when we look in scripture, we say, this is Christ. This is where he has been revealed. Lord, help us today as we contemplate what this means for us. It's so easy, Lord, to want to do things to make ourselves feel better or to have pictures and images that we believe somehow draw us in to worship you more, but without realizing that we're actually limiting ourselves in our understanding of who you are by focusing so much on that image, because that image really isn't you. Help us, Lord, to be satisfied with the very sufficient word of God. And that scripture alone would dictate to us how we are to worship you. Lord, thank you for the time that we have had, for the opportunity to look at the second commandment. Lord, may we all just ponder the implications of it and seek to honor you as best we can, and Lord, to do so for your glory. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.